All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 5. And the title is Jesus Breaks the Mold. We've already seen um, last week in in chapter 4 that as uh, Jesus came to his own hometown of Nazareth and announced that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and that he was anointed to preach and he was going to heal the brokenhearted and set the the captives free. He was going to give sight to the blind and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and said, hey, this has been fulfilled in your presence. And then he went on to talk about how the Lord and the Old Testament did great works among the uh, Gentiles. And that this is something that is going to happen again. This really infuriated them and uh, they tried to kill him. So Jesus' ministry is young, it's fresh, and yet opposition has already um, he's already met with opposition, a threat on his life. As we move into chapter 5, we're going to watch him begin to call some of his disciples. But really what we're going to see is that Jesus is not going to go about ministry in the traditional sense, in the conventional sense. He's going to do ministry as the spirit who's upon him is leading him and guiding him. And he's not going to be bound by the traditions, the really ungodly traditions that had so dominated the culture and, the, and, and religious life in Israel in the first century. He's, he's going to blow it up. And as he goes about blowing it up, um, they're going to go crazy. Now, what I want to be careful for us to keep in mind as we go through the gospel is Jesus is not blowing up the law as it was presented by the Lord. He's, he's blowing up the traditions that were passed down and had really, uh, in many ways, the traditions had overtaken the value of even the law. And so um, he's going to run right over the top of that. And we're going to see this and many of the scenes that we come across here in chapter 5. Let's begin reading together there at verse 1 as we see the call to follow Jesus. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee, and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them And were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. Verse 7, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. Jesus is calling them. Now, the boat that Jesus was in 
It was not some big ship liner, all right? It was just a, it was a, a small little vessel. And um, they actually have discovered a, um, an ancient boat from the days of, um, uh, in the period of Jesus. And I mean, it's, it's and is there a picture of it? No, we don't have a picture. I mean, it's, it's not much wider than the little part of the stage I'm standing on. And it is up there? All right, good. So you get an idea of this. And, and they actually found this encased in mud when the, um, the lake dropped in water level. And so it's dated to that time. And it is, um, you can see it's not a huge boat. It's just a little one, just enough to get a few guys in there to go and do their work. So Jesus is here. He's on the, the, the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful place. Um, you know, Jesus made uh, this area his headquarters. And if you go there, you know why. But what is really amazing about this whole area of the Galilee is that it's, it's so insignificant. I mean, you, you don't, you're not impressed by big cities. You're not impressed. I mean, it's beautiful, um, but you're not impressed by the, well, of course everybody's going to come to this spot. Of course he came here. Like you would be able to say of a, a Rome or a Jerusalem or an Athens or an Alexandria. Nah. This is off the beaten path. Um, but this is where Jesus came to do ministry, and this is the place where Peter, James, John, and Andrew um, all, and we're going to see Levi too, this was all their home, and this is where Jesus set up shop. And Jesus asks to use Peter's boat to teach the crowd, and lets him go on out there. He sits down, as was the custom of the rabbis of that day. He sat down, I'm standing, you're sitting down, but in that day, the rabbi would have sat down as well, and um, he would have began to teach. And so Jesus sits down and begins to instruct them uh, from the word and, um, and teaching them. And this captured people's attention. It brought multitudes in to hear what he had to say. You see there in verse 3, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. It's not just a, you know, a couple of dozen. I mean, this is a large gathering of people. And when he was finished, he says, hey, Peter, let's go fishing. And um, Peter's like, uh, listen, you know what? Didn't catch anything last night. Fish aren't biting. Fish aren't biting. Um, so I don't think this is a good idea. This is kind of me putting a little bit of interpretive spin on, on what we see in this text. He says, nevertheless, at your word. I mean, if you want me to do this, I guess I will. And so they go out into the deep, and what ends up happening defies the logic of expert fishermen. They end up getting a catch that is so large that they have to call in a second boat, and those two boats are barely able to stay afloat because they had caught so many fish. And, um, you know... This is the way the Lord is getting Peter's attention, right? He's, he's, he's speaking his language. And, and yet, it's a totally different approach. Peter understands immediately that this catch of fish is not just a new fishing technique. And even when he gets the call, he isn't like, hey, time out. You got, you got some skills, you know? Um, with my boat, my nets, your kind of whatever you did thing there, we could, 
We could really make a killing. That's not what happens. He, he, he immediately realizes that he is in the presence of somebody amazing. And he is cut. And he falls down at the knees of Jesus and says, I'm a sinful man. There was something that happened in that moment that caused Peter to see the holiness and the greatness of this Jesus of Nazareth and also brought him to the awareness of his own sin. This deep awareness of sin, it is imperative that each and every one of us has an encounter of that deep awareness of our own sin in the presence of the Lord. We've talked about this recently, but you, know, you can't go and just produce humility in yourself. You can't just you know, decide, you know what, I want to have a deep awareness of my sin, so right now I'm just going to uh, think about that and I'm going to be broken. It really is something that the work that needs to be done by the Lord himself. Whenever the Lord calls us to be followers, there always will be an acute awareness of our sinfulness and God's holiness. Again, on your own, because we just recently had looked at this, but on your own, go home and read Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he is humbled, and he is broken, and his words are, woe is me, for I am undone. I, you know, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then a coal is taken from the altar, and his lips are are touched and he's purged from his sin and then he's then signs up and volunteers to go into service to be a preacher. This is a model. This is a pattern that you can see repeated over and over and over in scripture. And it's one that should be repeated over and over and over in our lives. I believe this this process that we're talking about is what Jesus refers to in the first beatitude that we find on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You'll never have the kingdom of heaven until you have a poverty of your own spirit. That is, until you realize that you are spiritually bankrupt, you will never know the kingdom of heaven. Well, why is that? Because if you never know that you're bankrupt, you're never going to deal with your sin. You're never going to come to the Lord and have that taken care of. Think back on your salvation. Think back on what God was doing in your life. But this process of brokenness and humility or poverty of spirit is not something that should just happen at the time of our salvation. This is something that should be happening throughout our life and throughout our walk with the Lord. I'm not saying that we live in this depressed state of you know, um, uh, shame, but that we are constantly renewed in the presence of God and his holiness and made aware of our own shortcoming. I don't want to spend too much time on this point right here, but this lack of poverty of spirit is, lies at the heart of every man and woman who is separated from God and when there is interpersonal conflict that cannot be resolved. If you find a place where conflict cannot be resolved, check the humility. Check and see if there's a brokenness. That is what is needed. And so for, for Peter, um, was he humble when he said, 
you know, it's really not a good fishing time, but you know, I mean, if, if you want to, well, that's fine. I'll, I'll go ahead and push out there and see what happens. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what was there. Maybe there was something in the teaching that had just so humbled him and so gripped him that he's like, well, I mean, it's not fishing time, but after that message, whatever you want. So, I mean, we got to be careful here with um, how we uh, put tone into the, the phrase, nevertheless, at your will. And I, pastors, myself included, have, have gone and we've inserted that. So we don't know, though. But there is a brokenness that surely comes. And when he sees this haul of fish, again, the response is not, great business model. <laughs> Finally. Finally. There's a way in which I'm really going to make it, you know, um, progress, you know, financially. He's like, mm -mm. this is all spiritual for him. It's not financial. It's all spiritual. And he is, he knows that he's in the presence of somebody awesome. And so there in, in verse 10, um, Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch me. I mean, there was a fear of God, a true fear of God. And, um, and he's like, just depart. I, you don't want to be around a person like me. And he says, listen, from now on, you're going to catch men. So when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. Not just Simon, not just Peter, but all of them. James and John, his fishing partners, and his brother Andrew, they all decided they were going to forsake everything and they were going to come after him. And they were going to follow him. And that is what Jesus wants. He wants us to forsake all. He wants us to be willing at his voice to look at all that we have. And I think it's safe to say his fishing career had just reached its pinnacle. You can't call me now. I mean, I finally got this fishing thing down. I'm, that, that's what pride would do, right? But there's, there's no pride here. There's just brokenness and humility. He's not taking credit for it, but he's willing to forsake when he's at the top of the game. But you know, well, I understand why some people are willing to go and be missionaries because look at their lives. They got nothing going on. So yeah, of course they're going to go and be missionaries. But for me, you know, I've, I'm, you know, highly educated and I have really got a great business and I'm accomplished a lot. And, you know, you know, I'm needed in other places. Now, listen, that all may be true and God isn't calling you to be a missionary, but the mentality that thinks only those that are willing to forsake all in our context, and we often think of missionaries in that sense, and that's not the only way, but that, that's a wrong mentality. If the Lord, you've heard me say this over the years, everything that the Lord would ask us to touch is way over our pay grade. Hey, would you clean the toilets? Well, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, Lord, but I am. I've got an education. I've got this. People want to talk to me. If the, it's like, you know, the psalmist says, I'd rather be a, a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. If I, if I can just even do the smallest of, of things and to be near the kingdom and be near the worship of the Lord, then, then I'm willing to do that. So it's not just for those that, you know, lives are amassed and are strung out on drugs that are called and willing to forsake. No, it's, it's for all of us. 
Jesus does, and we will see him call somebody who was not a terrible fisherman on bad luck to follow him. He's also going to call some rich young rulers. And what are they going to say? Well, I don't know if I can leave all this behind. And they walk away sad. The Lord calls those that are at the top a Nicodemus, rich young ruler, and he also calls those that are, you know, having a, a bad business run or even, as we'll see, others that are, that are far worse off. But they forsook all. It's important for us to keep that in mind, that the call of the Lord upon our life is to forsake all. That we take up our cross and follow him. That we deny ourselves. I don't want to deny myself. i got to be true to myself. It would be wrong for me to not be true to my feelings and my emotions and my impulses. Jesus said, deny yourself, not indulge yourself. We live in the generation that says, indulge yourself. And they justify what they do because they're just being true to themselves. But Jesus says, deny yourself and be true to me. That's what the Lord calls us to. And so, where are you in this whole process? Maybe, was there a time where you, you got it and you were willing to forsake everything, but now life has become cluttered and all kinds of things have got in there again? And kind of off course, let the Lord's word still resonate in your heart to forsake all and come after him. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that you're not good enough. Because again, none of us are good enough. And, and this is what, how Jesus responds to Peter. It's like, wait a minute, wait. Don't be afraid. Don't think that you, you, you have no business being with me. I am calling you. I'm going to make you ready. I, I think this is one of the number one reasons why people um, don't want to go and, and fulfill what God has got planned for their life. It's because they feel like I'm going to fail. I'm going to mess it up. And I don't want to, I messed up enough things in my life. I don't want to go mess up serving the Lord in his kingdom. And the Lord would say to you, don't, don't be afraid. Come after me. I'm going to go teach you how to fish for men. Clearly, Jesus knew how to bring in a, a catch. And he says, listen, we're not going to fish for fish anymore. We're going to go after men's hearts. We're going to go build a kingdom, Peter. And I want you to come along. Isn't it amazing that the Lord has called us to the same task today? He's calling each of us to come and to engage in the task of going after the hearts and the minds of men and women for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is what we're called to do, is to fish for people. Maybe you're one of those fish tonight the Lord is going after. Maybe you're one that's you know you need to be caught by Jesus. You know you need to be brought into the kingdom. You need to be cleaned up. You need to be made um, acceptable like Peter is right here. Well, good news. The Lord is wanting to bring you in and jump on into his net. Jump on into his, his boat. And I just wonder, as we talk about this calling... Is there any of you that are sensing a call of God upon your life for ministry? Or you have had that real sense of the call of God upon your life. But again, ah, man, it's just like, it's like a, 
there's so much stuff cluttering your life, you can't even hardly find that path anymore. You know that it was there, but, but you can't remember it. It's hard to see it. Then you need to go get along, alone with the Lord and say, Lord, did I hear you right? Did you call me? And if you called me, help me rediscover that path. And if he has called you, then enroll in his, his class of training and allow him to bring you along in discipleship making you ready for that time when he launches you out. I wonder if on the day of Pentecost, if Peter thought back to this moment, when he saw all those people getting saved, all those people, a hostile crowd in Jerusalem that, you know, a couple of months earlier had killed Jesus. And now he sees all of these people getting saved. I wonder if he thought back, Jesus said he was going to make me a fisher of men. Look at this catch. Because the catch he had of men was more than the catch of fish. And so the Lord was fulfilling that in his life. In verses 12 through 16, we come to the the next scene, the second encounter in this chapter. And it's not with a, uh, you know, a failed fisherman, but it is with a a leper. Somebody who was a social outcast. the, the beautiful thing that we see here is that Jesus is willing to cleanse people. Let's read together. It says, And it happened when he saw, when he was in a certain city, that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed." So quite different, right, than the encounter he had with Peter. This man, is he's, he's desperate. He is in a place with one that would have had leprosy that he would have had to any family or any friends that he would have had, any community involvement, any uh, worship involvement he would have had in the community had all been cut off from him. He wasn't living at home if anything he was living with other lepers but there would have been a deep ache of his soul as you can imagine being isolated and unable to be a part of normal life and the leprosy in this day when you got leprosy it was a death sentence there was no cure there was no hope of getting over it it was just a slow painful physical pain emotional pain way of dying And this man had got word of Jesus, that miracles were going on, that he was touching people, and he he finds him. He, He seeks him out. And as he sees him, he just falls on his face, just lays himself out, just says, if you're willing, you can make all this go away. You can change my circumstances. And the Lord is willing. 
And he says that. He goes, oh, I'm willing. And he touches him. I wonder not physically, but emotionally, what that touch must have felt like. First of all, it was a touch that was full of healing power that went through his body. But it also was a loving touch that maybe he hadn't felt in quite some time. That somebody had actually reached out and touched him. And it was none other than his creator. It was his maker. It was this great rabbi. And he touches him. You know, this disease was dreaded. And every precaution was exercised to avoid contracting leprosy. You loved ones went out from the house. You didn't get near them. You, you were, stayed at a distance. They weren't welcome in the community efforts. Because nobody wanted this. Well, leprosy, although we don't find this stated here in the text, but leprosy is, is, is a picture of sin. And when we, we get, you know, we contract sin, which all of us have, it creates a separation between us and the Lord. But it also separates us from other people. It ruins relationships. It divides people. It breaks things down. First and foremost, a relationship with the Lord. And like leprosy of the first century, it is 100% deadly. If you have the sickness and the disease of sin, there's no healing. And these words, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Hey, these are the words that we all need to come to Jesus with, aren't don't we? We all need to come in this manner and say, I am a sinful mess. But if you're willing, you can cleanse me and you can forgive me. And we know the will of the Lord today on this matter. We don't have to guess. We know that he wants to cleanse us. You know, we know something, probably not as much as we should and nor as much as we think. But we know something about, you know, sickness in our day in 2020, don't we? And covid I'm not making any kind of political statement or medical statement or scientific statement. I'm making a spiritual statement. Look at everything we have done to try and not the world to make certain this doesn't spread. Think of everything that has been done to make certain that this sickness does not spread. I mean, nobody, I don't care. Nobody could have guessed beforehand that you could shut down the world economy on something called COVID-19. Nobody could have guessed that. And that is what happened. Now, I mean, it's kind of going again, but nobody could have guessed that. There's some places where it's still completely in the world, completely shut down. Because nobody wants to have to deal with something like COVID. That is, it is deadly, but it's nothing like leprosy. And it doesn't even touch sin. We, I think we have a model in front of us as believers on, on how we should deal with sin. And if the world is willing to do that over this, this virus, then what are we to be willing to do for something that is far more deadly than that? Well, Jesus would answer that for us. If you know, we were to ask him, he would say, well... Let's put it this way. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it from you. Or if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out 
and throw it. Because it's better to go into heaven maimed than to go to hell whole. And so we see, you know, it, you know this man who's coming, who's got this problem with sin, and, 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 and all the impl- implications that would have been um, at work around his life and in his life, making him a desperate, lonely individual because nobody else wanted to get that. And may we have that same kind of approach to sin. But if you are one that is in that place, it's like my life is a sinful mess. I'm a sinful man or a sinful woman. I, have, I live for it. I have lived for it. And I know that I am dirty. But I'm certain that Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with me. Wait a minute. Look at this scene right here. Jesus was willing to touch him. And he's willing to touch you too. He's willing to bring you to himself and to rid you of that deadly disease of sin. So come to Jesus and throw yourself down at his feet and say, Lord, cleanse me, forgive me. We move on into the third scene in verses 17 through 26. And here we see that Jesus has power to forgive sin. So we got a theme going, right? Peter's like, I'm a sinful man. You have this picture of sin in this leper. And then you have this scene where Jesus is going to show that he has power to deal with sin. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. Just ripped the roof right off. And the scribes and the Pharisees began, uh, whoops, a little too far. Verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said to them, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to them, said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, what we, or we have seen strange things, or we have seen amazing, wonderful, incredible. We've seen incredible things today. I love this, this account. There's so many aspects that are, are there for us to glean. And, and it begins with this, is the four men who brought the man. What we see is that Jesus responds to not the man's faith alone, but to their faith. Was it the four men or was it the four and the paralytic? Maybe it was all five. But it wasn't just the paralytic alone. And who knows, maybe it was just the four. 
And then they come and are like, we have got to get our friends in front of Jesus. It doesn't matter what we have to do. Can't get around the crowd, then we're going to tear this roof off and we're going to drop Jesus down. Those are some good friends, don't you think? We all need to have friends like that, that no matter what, they're going to pick us up and carry us into the presence of Jesus. You can't heal your friend but we know who can. You can't bring your friend's life back together, but we know who can. And we should have that kind of persistence. We should have that kind of intensity to get our friends and our family in front of Jesus. We're not the Messiah, but we know where he is. And we need to bring our friends and our family and those that we know before the Lord who can touch and change their lives. So Jesus sees him coming down, and he, and he says this amazing statement in verse 20. When he saw their faith, plural, he said to them, man, your sins are forgiven you. It was a setup. Jesus was setting the Pharisees up to teach a really powerful lesson. He knew they were going to bite on that. Now, was this man paralyzed because he was sinful, or... Is Jesus simply picking up on the bad theology of the day that said if you were sick, it was because of some sin in your life? We can't determine from the text. It really doesn't matter because Jesus is engaging these guys in a question that um, he wants to answer. And like, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a great question. There's only God can forgive sin. And so Jesus, all-knowing, says, well, I know what you're thinking right now. And you can imagine them are like, man, you know, I'm not thinking anything. I'm just watching the whole thing. Like, no, you're actually thinking, how can he say your sins are forgiven? Yeah, you're reasoning in your heart about this because you know that only God can forgive sin, which makes sense. Listen, if you offend me, don't go to your neighbor and apologize to your neighbor for what you've done against me. You need to come to me. I need to go to you. We need to go to the person we've offended or sinned against. Our sin is against God and God alone. So we got only God can forgive sin. He's the only one that has the power. So relationally, he's the only one that can do it because our sin is against him. And he's the only one that has the power to remit sin. And they get, their theology is right here. Only God can forgive sin. And so he's like, well, let me ask you a question. Is it easier to just tell people your sins are forgiven or is it easier to tell a man who can't walk to stand up and walk? How do you measure your sins are forgiven? That's a hard thing to measure, isn't it? You can't see it. You can't uh, observe some kind of change. But, you know, so you could say your sins are forgiven and I don't know whether or not they really were. Because how do I tell? But if you tell somebody who can't walk to stand up and walk, well, that's measurable. And it's okay. It's harder to tell somebody to stand up and walk. So here you go. Stand up and go home. You're healed. You, you, you're, you are free. You rise, go your way. Your sins are forgiven you. And he, and he says, hey, the mat you came on that bore you when you came, you bear it on your way out. 
And he got up and he went out praising and glorifying God. He didn't have to learn how to walk. He knew when the Lord said, you're whole, all the motor skills were there. All the muscle was there that he needed. All, all the, the balance, it was all right there in that moment. And he went out glorifying God. But those that hung out were like, whoa. And Jesus was saying, you don't know who I am. You think I'm a blasphemer? But actually, I'm God. And I do have power to forgive sin. That's why you got to come to Jesus. That's why you've got to come to Jesus. That, that's why Peter fell at the feet of Jesus. That's why when we have this, this sin, this disease problem called sin, we come and we lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus and say, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Because not only is he willing, but he's the one with whom we have to do. There's only one mediator between God and man, and it is Jesus. And you can come to him, and he will receive you. He will, he will, he will welcome you in your brokenness. You come with arrogance and pride, and I've got it all together, and hey, you know, I know you're looking for people for your kingdom. You, don't, you said yourself that there are not many would follow you. Well, good news, here I am to be, um, I'm, I've got a lot of skills. So here I am, Jesus. No. Nobody has ever come to Jesus like that. Jesus doesn't receive that. Remember the two men that were praying? The man beating his chest and saying, God, forgive me, I'm just such a wretch. He stood at a far, wouldn't even lift up his head. And then the Pharisee who said, I'm sure you're glad you got, glad that you got people like me around. I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. You're probably glad I'm not like that sinner. And the Lord was like, the man who couldn't even lift up his head, he went home justified. That's the one who went home right with me. And so Jesus has the power to deal with your sin. He has the power to cleanse you. He has the power to not only cleanse you, but like with Peter, to cleanse you and then thrust you into his eternal work. And he has the power to do it because he is God. You can't buy forgiveness, although people have tried to sell it, right? You can't buy it. You can't earn it. For by grace, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You, you can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can only come and be broken over your state and say, if you're willing, cleanse me. And the Lord has the power to do it. So this man went home and everybody else was just amazed. There was a godly fear that um, we've seen in each one of these scenes where Peter, right, is just saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And the Lord says, don't be afraid. We see the, uh, the, the leper that comes up and just lays himself out flat in front of the Lord, both in a sign of humility, but just realizing in whose presence he's in. And, and now the whole crowd is going and they're amazed. Verses 27 through 32. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast 
in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against this, uh, his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So again, we see Jesus calling and working and open to sinners. You know, the title of this study is, he, you know, he, he's, Jesus breaks the mold. He's going, he's calling people that recognize that they are not worthy to even be in his presence. He doesn't come to these guys, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's coming to other people. He's forgiving people. He's healing people. He's touching the lepers when people didn't do that. Everything that was, you know, what they were used to, they're looking at his life and like, you do things really differently. You have a different approach. And it's, it's seen clearly in this section. Jesus comes for sinners. Now, Levi is a tax collector. And, and as best as we can determine, that position was one that was, was bid upon. So if you saw an opening, you would say to, um, you know, Herod Antipas, if you give me the job, I'm going to make certain that you get 100 shekels a day, whatever. I don't know what it would be, but just picking them out. I'm going to make, I will give you 100 shekels a day if you give me that job. I'll bring it in every day and I'll pay you. And so people would, you know, potential tax collectors would bid against each other. And so whoever was the highest bidder and, you know, I'm sure other factors would get that position. Levi was the highest bidder. Which means he was willing to really stick it to his people. So they would, he had to give 100 shekels a day in this scenario. Um, but he had to make a living. And everybody hated him. So the more they, the people hated him, the easier it was to really stick it to them, right? And the more he stuck it to them, the more they hated him, which kept this vicious cycle going. So this, was, this is the man. He's just called four fishermen who probably paid taxes to this guy. Tax collectors were, were considered to be traitors to the nation because they were working for Rome and not just collecting what they needed, but they were collecting more. Think of Zacchaeus, right? And he talks about repaying those he had taken advantage of. This is who Jesus is calling. Four fishermen who had paid reluctantly taxes to this guy. And he, that's how he's building his team. So not an honorable position at all. Um, and yet Jesus says to those that question him spending time with Levi and all the friends. Who are the friends? He would have only had the outcast to call. He would have only had people that were disliked in the community as well. They would have all gathered together, just like lepers gathered together, tax collectors gathered together with sinners that weren't welcome in the regular part of life. And so they would have hung out. That, those are his friends. But, but Levi is so touched by the presence of the Lord, he's like, I've got to have, I've got to have my friends meet this guy. 
Do you remember that when you got saved? Do you remember that, that awareness when you, when you came to the realization that Jesus would, would receive you into his team and that he would cleanse you and he would make you whole and how you were forgiven and you have eternal life? Remember how excited you were and you wanted everybody to know? That's what's happening with him right now. But as Jesus comes to this, this party of tax collectors and sinners, the scribes and the Pharisees, they look upon him like, wow, you, are, you just don't even know. What are you doing hanging out with people like this? Well, hanging out would have been really the wrong word. Jesus was ministering. And that is an important distinction for all of us to make. You know, I think we could all do better by engaging like Jesus is right now with those that are not part of the righteous. But in doing that, there's a warning that's got to be there. And that is, don't do it for your social benefit. Do it for ministry. Well, how can I tell the difference? It's very easy. Have you preached the gospel and called them to repentance? If you've done that, then keep on doing it. Now, if you're just sitting around and talking and shooting the breeze, well, hey, do not be deceived. Bad company will corrupt good morals. Don't warm yourself at their fire. Bring them into the company of Jesus. Bring Jesus to the center of that gathering and, and welcome them in. Jesus came for those that were in need of forgiveness. He didn't come for those who had it all together. He came for those whose lives were messed up. Us. He came for us to make us whole. Again, here's this element of this brokenness. Everybody is sick and needs physician Jesus, but a lot of Pharisee-type people don't think that they need Jesus, that they've got it all together. They've got their philosophy together. They've got their finances together. They've got their religion together. They've got their morality together. They've got their politics together. I don't need Jesus. And Jesus said, well, I didn't come for you. I came for those who realize they're sinners and are saying to me, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. That's who I've come from. I've come for the tax collectors. I've come for the lepers. I've come for those whose lives are on the outs. Now listen, here's the, here's the thing. We hear this and we're like, oh, we love Jesus. This is so great, oh Jesus. We love you for being like that. Tax collectors and sinners and diseased people. That's my Jesus. But what if they came through our door tonight? What if they go to your home fellowship this week? What if they're in youth group this coming Sunday? Well, we got to be careful. You see how it goes? Listen, we, we must be wise, yes. But would we welcome tax collectors and prostitutes and thieves and those that are just desperate in life into our midst? Or have we become so sanitized that we just can't tolerate that? It's something for all of us to think through. All of us to search our hearts on. I'm in no position to be a judge of you on that. I've got to deal with my own heart. But those are the questions we all need to ask. We wrap it up here. 
verses 33 through 39, where we see Jesus just breaks the mold and he talks about it. Then they said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers and likewise those of the Pharisees, but you eat and, but yours eat and drink? He says, so how come you're not very spiritual? That's what they're saying. And he said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? When there's a wedding going on, that is not a time to be sad and somber and contemplative. That is a time to party. That is a time to have a blast and to have fun. It's a joyous occasion. I'm worth being joyful over. I'm a big deal. Now, Jesus isn't being arrogant. He's like, I am the Messiah. I have come. This is long and awaited. This is an exciting time in human history. So, no, we're not walking around and getting, carrying out the, uh, the, the fast like you do. Your traditions. We're having a good time. <laughs> we're, we're enjoying what is happening in this moment. He said, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Jesus is going to go away. And then they'll fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old brittle wineskins. It'll ferment and the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunking, drunk, no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. What is Jesus saying? He goes, you can't handle me. You can't handle what I'm, what I'm bringing. You know, you're, you're questioning me about my prayer life. You're questioning me about the people I, I eat dinner with. You question me that I would touch a leper, although it's not there. You can just imagine it. You question me about everything. But what I'm preaching and what I'm teaching and what I'm doing in people's life is the real deal. But you're old and you're brittle. And you can't handle what I'm bringing in that's new and fresh. It'll destroy you. Because they weren't willing to. They were caught up in their traditions. The pharisaical, the rabbinical traditions had turned the true faith in Yahweh into some old, brittle um, wineskin that when the Lord be, was doing the new work of the new covenant, they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle the new cup. It was going to destroy them. You know, and again, like in you know, this last scene, there's a point for us here. To not allow our own traditions to get in the place of what God wants to do. The history of the church is this. As a church turns into an old wineskin that values their methods and their stories and their traditions and their buildings and their systems and their methods more than they do the work of God. And God says, I'm going to go find a new wineskin. I'm going to go find a new way to do it. Man, Lord, don't ever let us become old wineskins. Don't let us get caught in that place where, hey, just is the way we do it. We got guitars and we got drums. Well, I mean, listen, if the Lord gets into, you know, methods become such that everybody's into, you know, bagpipes and flutes and I don't know. And that's what's, 
what's resonating. It's just an instrument. And if it all becomes where, you know, it's, it's, it's no longer building, it's all outside, and it's every, are we going to be so caught up in our buildings that we wouldn't break away from that? We must remain in a place where we're following the Spirit of the Lord. We don't get out there and say, Lord, follow us. We say, Lord, where are you going? And we follow him. And when he comes and does a new work, and listen, I think we all agree, a new work is needed. A new work is needed. Are we in a place, is Troy in a place, are the elders in a place, is the staff, are you all, I'm not pointing the finger, are we in a place to be ready to do a new thing if the Lord was to say do it? God, give us the grace to be a new wineskin that is soft, that can expand, that can stretch, that can bring in the new wine and just let you do a new work. This is what the Lord would have for us to do, is to be open to what he wants to do in our life. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this model. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And Lord, you are doing a new thing. Traditions had become the killer of your work. Stopping sinners and tax collectors and lepers and failed fishermen from coming and experiencing you. And you came and you just loved people and you walked in the midst of people. Lord, I pray that you would make me, us, Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, you would make us soft to the leading and the moving of your spirit. That we wouldn't value the things that we've grown to know and, and appreciate so much so that they would leave no more room for you. You are the Lord of the church. You are the head. We are the body. We don't want to guide you. We don't want to direct you. And Lord, we would invite your swift and immediate correction if we ever begin to walk that way. Lord, we pray you would pour out just the oil of your spirit upon the wineskin of Calvary Chapel, Lynchburg. Soften us, Lord. Make us supple. Make us usable in this hour. We invite the new work. And Lord, we are willing to lay down whatever you would tell us to lay down and pick up whatever you would call us to pick up. Lord, if we see people just flooding into this place who are like the people you hung out with and you were criticized, may you give us a heart that's ready to receive them in our midst. Lord, we want these people to experience your love and your grace. We want to see them be cleansed. We want to see them made whole. We want to see them sent off to be fishers of men. Thank you that you break the mold when you broke the mold when you came, may you mold us and shape us 